0: Some news for you folks i was just talking old man potter and he's guaranteed cash payments to the bank the bank's going to reopen next week
1: but george i got my money here
0: did he guarantee this place well no charlie i didn't even ask him we don't need potter over here i'll take mine now no but you're 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 thinking of this place all wrong as if i had the money back in a safe The, the money's not here well, your money's in Joe's house, that's right next to yours, and in the Kennedy house, and Mrs. Maitland's house, and a hundred others.
2: Hello everybody, welcome to Media Democracy, a podcast about the media, politics, and the
0: politics of the media. I'm Tom Mills and this is Dan Hyde hello uh, we are on Twitter um,
2: as in the shows on Twitter I'm on Twitter as well and so is Dan I'm at ta underscore Mills and Dan is at Dan Hind
0: this week we are going to be talking to the American author and public banking advocate Ellen Brown about uh, money and the banking system and how in the real world as opposed to the imaginations of journalists and economists. Um, but before we move on to that uh, we thought we'd quickly mention our sponsors for the show. As listeners know we are brought to you by The Media Fund which we are very happy to say has been launched this week so go over check out the website. This The launch was covered in The Guardian um, in an article that uh, features a photo of Nick Robinson uh, off the back of the uh, of Robinson Gate, uh, which we covered briefly last week. So Nick Robinson is now the face of the media fans, <laughs> Uh but you will find our shadowy overlord, Thomas Barlow, interviewed in, uh, in that article as well. So do go over to the Guardian's website. We don't normally recommend that, but um, you can find it there. Uh, it's called fund launch to create independent media free from right wing bias, um, which is, you know, a fair enough description, I suppose, of the uh, of the media fund's um, aims and objectives. So, uh, yeah, and go over to the media fund, become a supporter. It's now real, so so that's exciting.
2: Before we go on to turn around, though, it does come at an interesting time because you say Nick Robinson published that piece last week, uh, accusing independent. Media, some independent media, including some partners of the Media Fund, of waging a guerrilla campaign against the BBC. So, yeah, that's right. there is an interesting sense that the mainstream media are finally noticing independent media. There's been yeah. a long period where they simply haven't acknowledged the existence of uh, independent news outlets at all. Uh, to the point where they would sometimes introduce um, people from the independent media sector and describe them as activists or describe them as anything other than what they were. Now they're acknowledging them, but they're doing it in a way which, in in Robinson's case, it seems to be deliberately attempting to delegitimize them as as uh, sources of um, information. And I think, just as a as an aside. Nick Robinson to accuse him of waging a guerrilla war against the BBC when the BBC has been responsible for enabling actual wars through its coverage is a little bit rich. So, yeah. uh, I don't, as you know, I don't normally get cross with the BBC. But, um, <laughs> no, um,
0: it, no I, I think you're absolutely right, you know, and, and um, we did cover um, Nick Robinson's article which was based on his speech very briefly last week or at least we alluded to it and um, we're not going to go on go to town on any of that stuff uh this week because well we've got bigger we've got bigger fish to fry than than in the robinson's of this world but it is worth just adding to that point dan
2: um
0: <laughs> that in this particular article the the guardian article that i mentioned um just can't help resisting referring to navarra media uh, one of the uh, popular upstarts in the media world as the armed wing of Momentum, which was some sort of uh, dismissive remark made by somebody at some stage. And they quote that in this article. So it's adopting that same sort of... Like, even in this, you know, coverage of the uh, the media fund's launch, there's the same sort of metaphor there as of the, you know, the the independent media sector being in some way...
2: Um, like a owned subsidiary of, of partisan interests. Yeah, um, and, and being dangerous, you know, um, dangerous
0: and destabilising and the rest of it, which, you know, maybe they are, but...
2: Yeah, and it's not, it's frankly not helped by um, Paul Mason's naval metaphor, but there you go. Um, so, that was, that's the media fund. Do find out more about it. Um, as Tom said at the top of the show, we, we have an, uh, an interview uh, for you with, um, with Ellen Brown. Ellen Brown is an author and advocate of public banking, as we said earlier. She's the author of several books, including uh, Web of Debt, The Shocking Truth About Our Money System and How We Can Break Free, which was first published in 2007. The Public Bank Solution, From Austerity to Prosperity, in 2013. And her latest book, *Becoming Revolution in Banking, Democratising Money in the Digital Age, is published this autumn. Ellen is a senior fellow at the Next System Project based in Washington, DC, and she's also the chairman of the Public Banking Institute. And the reason why Tom and I thought it would be a good idea to have um, uh, Ellen on the show, really, is that if you look at coverage of the economy and political speech around, the, around um, issues of economic management, there is, I think, an enormous gap in the way that these issues are generally discussed and it's a, it's a gap which, in which I think a, an awful lot of angst and confusion is generated, and it's essentially around issues of money and finance. Um, almost no media coverage in the UK uh, begins from, as it were, factual premises about what money is and where it comes from. And almost no one who has an opportunity to speak in public with any degree of regularity has the first clue really what they're talking about. Um, Positive Money, which is a a group which uh, agitates for reform of the monetary sector, uh, did a survey of MPs in 2014, I think, which was a few months after the Bank of England published a report that uh, Ellen refers to in her interview, and only one MP in 10 uh, was able to describe accurately uh, what money is uh, and where it comes from and that is really i think that goes a long way to explaining why we are in our current predicament economically speaking so as i say we've we 've asked Ellen on uh, this week to talk us through the fundamentals of money and finance and I hope you enjoy the interview Ellen thank you so much for joining us on media democracy. I want to start with a very very simple question so What exactly is money?
1: Well, most people think it is those things you carry around in your purse or wallet, paper, dollar bills or notes and uh, coins. But in fact, according to a Bank of England report in um, 2014, only 3% of the money supply actually consists of physical money. The other 97% is created by banks when they make loans. And that's the part that most people don't understand and aren't aware of, and that's a bit shocking. They are, they are the creators of our money. Most people think government creates money, and therefore they blame government when things go wrong, when there's inflation or deflation. But the government really has very little to do with it. They should be creating money, but they're not.
2: So to be absolutely clear, then 97% of our money is created by the private sector.
1: Right. They do it by double entry bookkeeping. So when you go to the bank to take out a loan, let's say you want to loan for a mortgage for in the U.S. $500,000, um, they would write $500,000 into your account. And they don't draw that money from anywhere else. They just write it into your account. And then if your seller, let's say, is in the same bank, the bank's books will still balance. They'll just transfer it over to the seller. But if the seller is in another bank and that um, check goes out of the bank into another bank, then the first bank has to cover. And they'll do that by borrowing. They may borrow from their depositors or they may borrow from the repo market or in the U.S. from the federal home loan banks. So they're borrowing from the shadow banking system very cheaply and lending to you at a much higher rate. And then so that money that that was created on the books of the bank is now out there circulating in the in the economy. From their point of view, their books balanced. They had a500,000 um, dollar asset, which was they count your mortgage as an asset because you will pay that sum back over time. And then they count the same sum as a liability because when your check goes out of the bank, they have to cover it. So from their point of view, it all comes out to zero. But that $500,000 that went into another bank now is circulating in the economy as checkbook money, which is counted in the M1 um, money supply.
2: So, that's a, so, so, there's, is, so there's an increase in the money supply that, that's achieved by that, that forwarding of a loan.
1: Right, and then when the loan is paid off, the money supply that that five hundred thousand goes back to zero. Not counting the interest, of course, they create the principal, but not the interest. So somewhere, someone has to take out another loan to create enough money to cover principal and interest. Theoretically, you you don't have to take out another loan because um on because banks only collect a little bit at a time. So in theory, let's say your payments were $1,000 a month. If the bank then paid you that $1,000 back, let's say they hired you to scrub their floors, that's a <laughs> typical example, then
2: uh, you it, could pay
1: that same $1,000 for 20 years and, and pay off your loan. But it, if It's funny because you
2: mentioned, you mentioned scrubbing the floors. It sounds a lot like... The the people in the bank aren't doing anything and then we're doing menial labor for them. Is that is that a fair representation of the economy?
1: It is. I mean they don't do very much. Of course, what they do is take the risk that the loans won't get paid back. So right, in which to... case
2: in which case the taxpayer bails them out anyway. So they there is no they, there is no risk, is there, right? right.
1: Uh, Basically what though so what you are doing is turning your own I O U your own promise to pay into money. If you went to the grocer and you tried to pay by writing an I O U, the grocer wouldn't take it. So that's what you need the bank for. The bank is the trusted third-party middleman that will turn your I O U. They'll trade your I O U for the bank's I O U, which is what 97% of our money supply is it's right. bank credit.
2: So it's a good as-
1: different.
0: This is quite different, and to how we we would normally think about a bank as being. An intermediary between um, let's say people within a community I I save some money and I pass that to the bank and the bank lends that to Dan and then he, he spends that on something so the classic idea of the bank is that they act as an intermediary between people within the economy right
1: so in a, in a sense that's true I mean there's the
2: classic movie um, it's a wonderful life. I don't know if that's classic. In yeah, UK. we have that every is, every Christmas, pretty much.
1: that's yeah. how it worked in the Great Depression, but you saw what happened in the Great Depression. The banks all collapsed because when the depositors came for their money, when the neighbors all came for their money in a bank panic, the bank didn't have it because the bank had lent it out. So after that, so that's the conception people have. But after that, uh, in the U.S., we went off the gold standard, domestically in 1933 and I think the UK did it before that so since then the banks have been able to just write money into their accounts and there's no gold standard to um sort of keep them honest I mean they're they're still honest in their way but it's it's all it's all just sort of paper shuffling so in order to balance the books they only have to balance the books at the end of the day so you have checks flying in and out all day in the bank. And if they're lucky, maybe the bank next door also created a $500,000 mortgage loan, which then found its way into the first bank and all the banks, ba- all the books balance and they don't have to do anything. Mm-hmm. But if they're not so lucky, then they can borrow. But they just borrow overnight and then they give the b- money back in the morning. So it's all slate of hand. They're, they don't even keep that money. They just borrow it long enough to make it look like their books balance. And then they do that over and over. And then what happened in 2008 when we had the Lehman Brothers crisis was that, or the crisis triggered by Lehman Brothers and AIG was that um, it was the repo market. Well, this gets a bit complicated, but the run was not actually on the banks. The banks were pretty well covered by laws by then, but the run was in the shadow banking system. So when the banks went to borrow overnight, as they do, the money wasn't there because the money market had pulled their money out
2: I see and is that so that's why you had to have this these huge interventions by the Bank of England and the Federal Reserve and so on to right. to be it, a, as it were a lender of last resort
1: right Congress was told apparently that in a few hours the whole global system would collapse if they didn't step in, so they did. <laughs>
2: Yeah, yeah. Well, that brings me to, to my second question, because I imagine that the, the, the people in Congress in the States and the um, MPs in the UK and other legislators, when a, when a finance minister or the head of the central bank came to them and said, actually, you know what, you need to, you need to give us h- authorization to, to lend huge amounts of money, otherwise the global economy will collapse. I imagine a lot of legislators were more or less completely in the dark about what had happened and why and so what i wanted to ask you next is, is essentially why doesn't everyone know this already why isn't it common knowledge that banks create money in the act of lending it why why is the the level of of our sort of public discussion of money so so low do you think
1: Well, we certainly aren't taught that in school, and you could ask why we're not, but I think bankers themselves, economists themselves, have been preaching the other story ever since at least the 1970s, that banks are merely intermediaries taking in money and lending it out again. And for that reason, they didn't really factor banks into their equations. They thought they were just passive middlemen, but they're not. They're actually creating money when they make loans but in fact the system of banks creating money goes way back several hundred years to fractional reserve lending when banks originally uh, took in gold and then they would write you a little receipt for your gold and they other people would want to borrow the gold and so they would write them a little receipt as well which was called a banknote and everybody knew it was a banknote issued by that bank because it had the bank's uh, name on it so right. it was really just a promise to pay on demand it wasn't it wasn't actually money it was a promise to pay what was then considered money which was gold but because those little receipts were so convenient to trade people traded them instead of they would prefer to have those to carrying around this heavy gold that might be stolen right. And then in the late 19th century in the U.S., uh, that we had a National Bank Act, which put a heavy tax on states, state banks, like state chartered banks, issuing their own bank notes. The idea was to get everybody into the federal system. But many banks, rather than joining the federal system, got this bright idea of, well, they wouldn't actually print bank notes, they would just give you a checkbook, and you could essentially Write your own bank notes, so you would be, you would be writing checks, which again you're writing your own IOUs, but it's going through the third party middleman of a bank. Oh, they
2: that's interesting. Check. So, so checks were originally a kind of, well, in the states, at least, were a form of sort of tax avoidance. Yes. How the
1: interesting. Whole, yeah, bank yeah. deposits, bank deposit accounts were tax avoidance. Yeah.
2: How interesting! How interesting. Okay, so so the the banking system has been has been, as it were, multiplying purchasing power um, for a long time. It's taking an asset like gold, um, and then lending it or sort of recycling, but you know, promissory notes or bills of credit or whatever around it, which which is unstable, right? Potentially, everyone could want their gold back, and it would be unclear. Who 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 actually had had claim to it, and there wouldn't be enough gold to go round, as it were. Um, so it, well, of course, we don't. It's not backed by gold anymore. But no, no. But it, even what I'm saying is, even when it was re- relatively simple, when it was when there was some sort of solid asset um, that people it was could
1: stable yet.
2: It, it was there was still an instability there. Which presumably explains why gold is, has such a, sort of powerful rhetoric of itself, right? It's such a stable metal. But so setting that aside, the the, the financial sector has always had this propensity to to inflate credit. Um, but we, as customers of banks, and as suppose you know people in in government who are supposedly overseeing them, have never really seemed to grasp what's going on in the financial system. So. I'm just curious, as like, why are we? Why have we been? Why do you think we've been so incurious about banking? Why is it that we're so slow to actually get to grips with what what the banking system does?
1: Well, I would imagine because we have been told ever since childhood that banks are merely intermediaries; that their function is to take in the neighbor's money and lend it to you for your mortgage.
2: Right, right. <laughs> so,
0: and
1: people, it's too complicated. It's too boring. They really don't. They don't think they can do anything about it, and they learned it a certain way. I mean, even my son went to, he's got a master's in econometrics, and he didn't study banking, and in, in, they, they don't teach it even in economics class. But if people understood that banks were creating our money and that the whole system would not work at all if the federal government were not supporting it, it's all underwritten by the federal government, then it seems fairly obvious that we the people should own the banks, that the banks should be public utilities, just like roads and electricity, all those things that flow. Money is a flow. It's not a thing.
0: So, Ellen, before we get on to um, public or democratic um, alternatives to this private banking system, could you talk a bit more about historically the role that the state has played in in banking systems and how how that's how that's changed over the, the decades and the centuries?
1: Well, we've had two competing banking systems going on, going all the way back to Sumeria, which would be 5,000 years ago, where uh, the, the, the conventional thought is that money began as barter and gold was the best thing to barter because it didn't decay. And so that's how gold became dominant in a private system. But in fact, even gold, the first gold coins weren't issued, I think, until, if memory serves, I think it was 1100 BC. So, and they were stamped with the picture of the emperor. I mean, they're actually backed by the government, issued by the government, and they always had less value in precious metals than the face amount of the currency, because otherwise, as the value of the coin rose and fell, it would be melted down for its gold content if, if it went over the face value of the coin. So the, so it was always a government-issued, government-sponsored thing. And then, of course, you had a lot of coins, like copper coins, that weren't worth much. I think Queen Elizabeth started issuing uh, coins that were, Elizabeth the First issuing coins that were not worth much of anything. Oh,
2: after. I see. But the, because they were stamped with the monarch, they they had a kind of... They had a value. In yeah, s- and then of course of the-
1: paper money, or, or paper money issued by governments is clearly government issued money. But beyond that, then you've got the central banks that consider it their mandate to maintain the value of the currency, and you've got federal governments that actually originate most of our money supply. Because private loans get paid back, but government loans virtually never get paid back. I mean, I, Well, I mean, they do get paid down some. But anyway, like in the US, we have a $20 trillion deficit, federal deficit. And if you were a private borrower, you could never get away with that. But our $20 billion deficit is actually our $20 billion money supply. That is actually the source of our money. So the government borrows its rights checks on its central bank account. And then taxes are coming in all year, of course, and if the tax at the end of the year, if the taxes haven't balanced the the um you know if there's a deficit, mm-hmm. then they just they just borrow that and they borrow by issuing bonds. But what they could do, and what I think they should do is just leave that as a deficit or borrow it directly from the central bank. And therefore, they wouldn't have to pay interest, or the interest would go back to the federal government, the, and the at least the U.S. Federal Reserve returns its profits to the government. So yes. it would, in effect, it's really the interest that's killing us, not the debt. A $20 trillion debt doesn't hurt anything if it's just sitting out there representing the yin and yang, you know, the black and white, the opposite, uh, the balance sheet, balance of our money of our positive money supply since all money on that theory is created as debt they're the other side of the debt of the balance sheet it's the interest that keeps growing and growing and that's why you have to you always have this uh, push for growth and which is really bad for the environment etc
0: so the um the what you're saying is that the Imperative to create growth in a capitalist economy is is, is based on that um, Monetization of, of the debt which at its heart is is controlled by the state so that in other words If we had democratic control of that or we could organize it differently then that would um, remove some of these kind of um, imperatives for damaging policy in other areas like the environment. Have I, have I got that right?
1: Well the growth imperative also is related to our capitalist system where where we always have to be creating generating a profit and then the profit is not if if these were socialist engines where the profit was returned to the economy or returned to the people then it then it could balance but but in our current system the profits are sucked out into maybe offshore tax havens offshore investments or just into this speculative economy, which is really a second economy that doesn't produce anything. It's just sucking out money. I mean, it's like we've got two economies going at once and they're both balanced on top of this productive economy. So that's why the productive economy is always under stress, always has to produce more in order to support the speculative economy that doesn't, doesn't actually produce.
2: So the, the speculative economy sits on top of the, the economy of companies and employment and so on um, right. and relies on it for its, for, as it were, for its stake, for its seed funds. So it sort of takes money, money out of the productive economy and then gambles with it and then presumably needs more and more um, to cover its losses.
1: Well, or just it needs more and more because it—it's just it goes up into the speculative economy and never comes back down. I mean, it goes up into the six people that own half as much wealth as the rest of the. Oh, world. I see. I
2: see. So it's never recycled back into. Right. Into the into the rest of the economy.
1: It's de- they definitely don't spend it on consumer goods because how many consumer goods can six people buy? But they really don't spend it. I mean, it's really just growing and growing and growing, very like a parasite. I
2: mean, this, I think, this brings us quite neatly to your proposals for for reform, really. Could you talk us through the idea of a public bank and how that might work in practice?
1: A public bank is, one, owned by... The government, so we, the people, through our government. This assumes that we have a representative government. In the globally, I think in the 1970s, 50 percent of banks were uh, public sector banks, but now it's down to 22 percent because of this big push for privatization. In the U.S., we have one, the Bank of North Dakota, and I knew it was our only state-owned bank, and so I was watching right after 2008 and. By the spring of 2009, North Dakota was the only state that hadn't slipped into the red. So I figured there was something special about their bank, and so I I delved into it and started writing about it. And that, from that, came the Public Banking Institute and a book I wrote called *The Public Bank Solution*. So the Bank of North Dakota is It was set up in 1919 in a farmer's revolt when the farmers were losing their farms to big out-of-state banks. It's a very Republican, conservative state, so it wasn't a socialist thing. It was about keeping our money in the state for our own purposes. By law, all of the state's revenues are deposited in the bank, and then it does what all banks do, which is leverage its capital backed by its deposits. To generate loans, but in this case, it's loans for the local community, and the interest goes back to the state. So it's a it's a closed circuit. In other words, it's not one. Of, there's not a parasitic, speculative, economy sucking the profits out. But the profits are all returned to the economy, and it works very well. They're very profitable. There's an article in the Wall Street Journal that said that. The Bank of North Dakota was more profitable than Goldman Sachs and J.P. Morgan Chase, which are two of our biggest banks. And this is because of they have a very efficient business model. They're basically a banker's bank, so really you could run the thing by a couple of guys in an office working a computer. Um, they don't. Well, they do have two. Now they have two branches, but it's not like they have to have a branch in every corner. Uh, they they actually partner with the local banks so the local bank acts like the front office and goes out and finds the customer and determines creditworthiness and all those things that banks do and then the bank of north dakota steps in and helps with liquidity and helps with capital and takes a percentage of the profits and they do many other things for the state they make two percent loans for infrastructure which other states are making them at four percent or five percent or six percent right so it's yeah, so it's a quite low rate. They make 1% loans for startup farmers and businesses. They make student loans that are 2% below the federal rate. So it's a quite good deal all around. The state is making money from the bank, and the communities are making money from the bank.
0: Helen, in the course of our recent general election, there was a discussion around um, monetary policy, and the Conservatives um, used the phrase, the magic money tree, um, to dismiss uh, any revision to uh, fiscal and monetary policy. It sounds like, from what you're saying, that a magic money tree of sorts is perfectly possible if there's a political will to create it to direct credit towards socially useful ends, and the public bank would seem like um, a good option. I, was, I wonder if you could speak a bit more about um, the developments around the Labour Party, I don't know how closely you follow that stuff, but the kinds of policy options that would be avail- available to a, a reforming government um, in terms of monetary and, and banking policy.
1: Right. Well, the banks already have a money tree. So that's the point. The government could be doing the same sort of money tree. In other words, you issue the credit first, then it gets paid back. That's what Roosevelt did in the 1930s. These are called self-funding loans. So you put the credit out there for productive things, infrastructure type things, and then the proceeds from whatever was built pays back the loan. So you could also do that with people's QE. I know that Jeremy Corbin was talking about, it, and I saw a rebuttal by Tim Warstall, I think who said uh, that, that you can't do quantitative easing that actually gets into the real economy because you can't recapture it if you know once once it becomes inflationary, you've got to have a way to pull that money back. but that's not the federal government doesn't need to rely on the central bank to pull the money back. the federal government has something called the taxing power. And that doesn't mean that you have to raise taxes. The taxes on the money you generate will be sufficient to pay back the loan, or the, you know, the new money that you put out there will pull it back so that you won't create inflation. And this is because money circulates. So in a good economy, money circulates on average about seven times. So that means, you know, the banker pays the The landlord pays the, probably never a landlord, who pays his mortgage, who pays the, the, you know, the seller pays the grocer, et cetera. So it circulates seven times, and each person who gets that dollar, assuming it's a legitimate business, a legitimate taxable business, will pay taxes on it. So let's say you had an average tax rate of 15%. In seven rounds, you would get all that money back for the government. And there are, you You also have sales, you know, you have not only income taxes, but sales taxes on that money. So so you can get it back without hyperinflating the system. But the secret is you've got to get the money out there first if you want to have a thriving economy. And if we're talking about something like um, a guaranteed infrastructure, sorry, a guaranteed in basic universal basic income guarantee mm-hmm. where you pay a certain amount to everyone you don't want to do it just to people who need welfare because then you do encourage laziness because their, their welfare goes down as their income goes up give it to everyone so it makes it very easy to do you can just give debit cards to everyone for a certain sum monthly limit what it can be spent on if you want um, that money will create the demand to create more productivity and the productivity itself will return the taxes to the government to balance out the books and I've written about this and I can show the figures.
2: <laughs> so you're essentially saying you, we can we can buy now and pay later?
1: Yes, well and you've, it's just the way all businesses work, they all run on credit. You have to pay for workers and materials before you have a product, right, and then the, right. You sell the product and pay off the loan. But you've got to get the money out there first. And then the question is how to get it back. And that's why everybody objects to the, you know, the quantitative easing that the central banks have done never made it into the real economy. That's why it didn't create the hyperinflation that was predicted. That money never made it past the reserve accounts of banks. There's a totally separate money system called the reserve system, and that money cannot jump the great divide into the real economy. But it also doesn't stimulate the real economy. If what you want to do is to have some demand, so they've got some consumers to buy your products, which generate more productivity, you've got to get it into the pockets of consumers. And for that, you've got to do some sort of people's QE.
2: So, just thinking a bit more about the the idea of, of public state banks in the US, uh, would would something similar, do you think, be appropriate in the in the UK to have regional banks um, that were that were owned by the state? Could that would that be possible here? Is there anything particular to US that makes it possible there, and not possible here?
1: Uh, yes, it's possible. I know in Wales they're working on it. Um, there was a discussion about turning the um, the Bank of Scotland right. into, yeah, into a publicly owned bank. Uh, one issue so I've heard is you really don't have local banks, so it's a, but you have credit unions, so it could work through credit unions. You could set up postal banks as far as you know there there are many ways it could be set up. Right. It wouldn't necessarily be the same model that of the Bank of North Dakota, but then there's the German Sparkasm model, which is also very successful, where they they do take public, you know, individual deposits and they, they're limited to their local communities, and those banks too, in a recent 2015 study, were shown to be more profitable than the private banks, including Deutsche Bank. Deutsche Bank, I've heard,
0: is,
2: is yeah, is in uh, in a great deal of sort of structural difficulties, to put it mildly.
1: Right, due to ter- derivatives.
2: Yeah, yeah. Well, um that is a that's a f a fascinating um sort of introduction to this this subject. It's certainly something that's look, looked at um coverage of of the economy since just before the um financial crisis. It's always struck me as a, as a major sort of gap in in the way that we try and make sense of uh, the economy in the sort of general media. Just before we wind up, Ellen, can I ask your your first book, um, which uh, which is um, Web of Debt, was published in in two thousand and seven, which is a which is a a, a very um, resonant date in the UK because it's obviously when uh, Northern Rock uh, collapsed, and in some ways was the beginning of the the financial crisis, at least here, um, what what made what drew your attention to the financial system in the in the, presumably the year or two before two thousand and seven?
1: I actually started writing after the after 9/11, 2001. Uh, and I well I had researched this subject about the Federal Reserve and banks actually issuing the money. When it was still a conspiracy theory, before it, it became official when the Bank of England actually said it, and now the Bundesbank said it too, like last spring,
0: Right. and I think the Bank of England has reaffirmed. So so now it's
1: officially accepted, but when I was writing, I knew that, and I was interested in writing about it, but I didn't really know what I could say that hadn't already been said until I discovered that The Wizard of Oz was written as a monetary allegory in that 19, 1890s uh, late 1890s so that gave me a hook and I could bring in all my writing skills and make it a page turner and so forth so it just it took me six years <laughs> six years to write the thing so it, but I did write I mean it was considered prescient because I was predicting that the whole thing was going to collapse but the only reason I knew that was I was just drawing on many alternative writers who thought
2: so that's interesting. Well, it's you know, kudos to you for for, for getting it out in two thousand and seven because um, it yeah uh, you could have been writing from two thousand and one and if it'd come out a couple of years after then people wouldn't have seen it as being quite as pressing. So, um, well you know shout out to all our friends in the in the in the conspiracy theory community because uh, on on, um, on this one it seems you were on the money. Um, Ellen, it's been an absolute pleasure to to speak with you today. Thank you so much for for taking some time uh, to join us. And um, yeah, thanks again for for talking us through the fundamentals of finance.
1: Okay, thank you. It's been great talking to you.
2: Bye bye. Bye Goodbye.